This episode of Data Nonce is brought to you by IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV is the resource to keep you and your IT team skills up to date. Visit itpro.tv slash datanauts and use code datanauts30 to get a free 7-day trial and 30% off a monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. Today's episode of Data Nonce is brought to you by Live Action. On Thursday, October 26th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, join me, Ethan Banks, and Live Action CTO John Smith as we demo Live Action's real-time network visualization and topology maps for complete situational awareness. Register today at www.liveaction.com slash go slash WAN. We have heard many stories about companies who move into public cloud only to move back out again. Why? Well, several reasons, but cost is a recurring theme. Some folks think they could do it more cheaply themselves. Is that really the case, or are they doing cloud wrong? To find out, we take on the topic of AWS billing today on this episode of the Data Knots podcast. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanauts shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcast directory. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show on Twitter. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the fabulous Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who has been flying round and round the world and finally finds himself at home a little bit. Chris, uh, welcome Woo. back from the life of a plane. Thanks. I mean, I am <laughs> tempted to bring like some camping gear and just pitch a tent and like row 15 f or something but uh so far i just curl into a ball and and look forward to landing (laughs) joining chris and i today is Corey quinn and Corey, i was introduced to you because you have a newsletter about what's been going on in aws why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your newsletter before we jump into our topic today absolutely i spent years as a systems engineer type and started to drift into consulting specifically aimed at AWS billing. And I noticed that there were a couple of things that all sorted to converge. First, everything that Amazon does touched billing, but there was no good roundup of this. The second was that given that lack of roundup, it was very, very hard to keep up with the sheer volume of things coming out of it. And third, there was no one making fun of Amazon on a consistent and reliable basis. And I figured (laughs) in that Venn diagram of being a snarky curator of Amazon news, there was an opportunity. So a little over six months ago, I started Last Week in AWS. Uh, It comes out every Monday morning, Pacific time, and it immediately dashes the hopes of people in Seattle that I will shut up about what Amazon is working on this week. So it starts off their week with disappointment, which is in some respects how some of their releases have treated us. (laughs) And if you go to lastweekinaws.com, you can subscribe to Corey's newsletter. And one of the the taglines, if you just want to get the tone of this thing, once a week, no fluff, no spam, no Gartner magic quadrants. Corey is a packet pushers and data knots kindred spirit. Thanks for coming on the show, Corey. And so, right, let's get into the thing that you're, well, you're developing a reputation for, which is helping people understand their AWS bills, optimize their AWS spending, and so on. There's a couple of level-setting questions I wanted to ask you. Uh, I really thought picking your brain might be good for this. I think a lot of people who are new to public cloud think the whole idea is to take what they had in their data center and then, like, replicate it in AWS. Explain how right or wrong that notion is. That is a surprisingly accurate notion, only insofar as it is step one of two. 
When you're doing a migration from what's in your data center into AWS, there are two approaches, both of which fail in different ways. But the more workable one in my experience has been you take what you have in your data center and you move it with as few changes as possible into a public cloud provider. Yes, this is going to be horrifyingly expensive, but the second phase then is refactoring aspects of your application to take advantage of cloud native solutions. Trying to condense those two phases into one means that now you're rewriting your app while you're moving it, and now it doesn't work, or God forbid, it's slow. How do you figure out why that is? Is it the application rewrite? Is it the new environment it's in? Is it something else that you've somehow missed? It turns into a giant confused muddle. Now, doing it that way does cost more than a lot of the pie-in-the-sky TCO calculations would have you believe, but it is the right move, uh, provided that a company's doing it for the right reasons. What about keeping this stuff on-prem and then refactoring it directly into the cloud so that's still you know production and such running in your data center, but you're doing the refactoring to avoid the billing hit? Is that, is that the wrong way? Is that trying to do too many movements at the same time? If in many cases, it feels like it is. Uh, you also have to get under the hood of why a company is doing the migration in the first case. Uh, is it for is it a capability story? Because that'll often move the needle on this. Cost optimization by itself rarely winds up carrying the day. Sometimes you just have the most banal reasons possible, such as the CIO read about cloud in the in-flight magazine. And yes. that winds up driving that decision. There's a variety of reasons. Not all of them are terrific for making a migration like this, but mapping that to your organization intelligently is sometimes a bit of a challenge. There's a whole army of marketing people just rubbing their hands like like Mr. Burns, like, yes, read my magazine. But also, so you, you hinted on the fact that public cloud, if you just do step one being, I move all my stuff, then lift and shifted it to public cloud, that is quite expensive, although people tend to think, Public cloud is cheaper because kind of renting by the drip. I know there's per second costs and things like that. I mean, you spent a lot of time helping companies find a way to reduce their bill to make it less expensive, more predictable. I guess comment on the fallacy that public cloud is just cheaper than on-premises because it is. I'll take it a step further. I think there's a there's a deeper fallacy there, which is that when companies engage me, they do generally believe that what they want is to lower their bill. But okay. in my experience, that's often not the case at all. It starts that way. That's what they believe the problem is. But the more realistic problem that they're dealing with in the short term is they're getting a bill for an enormous pile of money every month that shows up in finance. People who don't fully understand the intricacies of AWS. Spoiler, most people in engineering don't either, but that's neither here nor there. And there's five levels of organizational distance between the person receiving the enormous Amazon bill and the people who are doing things that affect it. And if you log into Amazon's billing dashboard, it tells you that X percent was spent on storage and Y percent was spent on compute in the form of EC2 or Lambda. And that's great, but it doesn't answer the business questions, which look a lot more like, how much am I spending on COGS versus R&D? If I add 1,000 users, what's it going to cost me to service those users? There's no financial modeling. There's no cost allocation method that makes sense for these companies. And more or less, that is what my projects invariably tend to distill down to. Now, as an artifact of that, I generally wind up saving a boatload of money along the way, but it turns into a process and governance discussion as well in the sense of how you can get out of engineering's way while simultaneously lowering and understanding the bill. 
Well, let's start breaking down what that bill might look like then. If I'm thinking about a public cloud project and I've got to have all these components and pieces and parts that are a part of that project, what sorts of things in there is is AWS billing me on? Some things, Corey, I, I think I'm aware of here, like uh, you know, resource utilization, whether something's a, a micro instance versus a small versus all the other options. I know time usage is a thing you can get billed on, like per second was just announced for EC2 and EBS, and then per hour, then instance uses, the times executed, I believe, Lambda maybe bills like that. So can you break that out and help us understand at a high level the kinds of things and the ways in which AWS bills us? Sure. We can even take it down to something very relatable. If you spin up a single instance, let's say you're not in the free tier because that complicates things immeasurably, and you wind up with, I don't know, let's say a T2 micro, and you're running that in an AWS account, it's going to cost, uh, I don't remember offhand in what region you're in, between somewhere between $10 and $15 a month for the instance, plus whatever storage you have attached to that, plus whatever your data transfer looks like, both from that instance to the greater internet, as well as from that instance to anything else it speaks to within AWS that's in a different availability zone or region. So even at the one instance size where you're throwing a blog onto it or an IRC bouncer, I can't tell you within more than about 20% or so what that instance is going to cost you per month. It's going to come down to those use cases and those impacts that wind up driving this. Now, at scale, when you have 10,000 of these instances and you've been doing this for a year, now there's some historical data to fall back between. You, you generally, at that scale, aren't going to suddenly burst to 3x your current size. Your users usually aren't going to triple or have themselves over the course of a given month. So you, you wind up being able to normalize within a, certain, within a standard deviation or two. That tends to be a little bit more predictable, but there are all of those aspects that you base cost on and more. Exactly how many IOPS you provision on your storage, what the data transfer and what the data traffic profile of your application looks like. Is it talking between AZs to, for example, for a Cassandra cluster that's trying to keep current? Well, that winds up costing, in most cases, two cents per gigabyte transferred over the course of a month. Now, not that big of a deal at small scale, but at volume, that can be tens of thousands of dollars a month. Reminds me, I guess back in the day, I'll age myself a little, when uh, a colleague of mine was running his own blog and he was like, oh, I'm going to make it the default loading page for IE for my corporate standard so that I get more traffic and accidentally pushed that out way bigger than just the the little office he was in. And all of a sudden there's like 4,000 hits an hour hitting this poor little blog that he's self-hosting and just totally crushed his bandwidth allotment. So it's certainly not the exact same parallel, but certainly the, I think $30 a month he had budgeted was crushed by one little mistake around, you know, network costs, you know, completely killed his quota. The $15 instance charge can be massively inflated by something as little as, you know, network bandwidth and egress and ingress uh, between AZs. Thinking of that, part of your newsletter, you point out the fact there's uh, like a boatload of services. There's lots, lots, there's tons of them. And if I understand them, is there a possible advantage to my bill? Like instead of setting up my own Redis instance, I'm setting up an EC2 instance. Maybe I run Elasticash. You know, like is it kind of like choose your own adventure? And if you get the recipe right, it's cheaper if you're able to like switch technologies or I guess kind of comment on that. It absolutely is if you consider it in the context of what of the discussion that we're having, which is with one or two exceptions, I have never yet seen a company that did not have the AWS bill dwarfed 
by payroll. And I'm talking companies that are spending tens of millions of dollars a year. This is These are non-trivial amounts of money. But what's even more expensive than AWS resources in many cases is engineering time. If you're a relatively small startup with three to five engineers that's working to build something interesting and ship it, you probably don't want to spend a whole lot of time managing your re-implementation of a service. So the cost saving there is really taking the form of opportunity cost. Instead of doing housekeeping work, then you can wind up just relying on a platform primitive. So from that perspective, the economic discussion is very simple. If you're talking about the actual dollars and cents perspective of just the service itself, and you, I guess, either agree to overlook or just balancely enthusiastically accept the fallacy that engineering time is free, then you will generally save money by building your own primitives on top of existing uh, blocks rather than relying on platform services. You're just going to spend a lot of time handling the care and feeding of it. Isn't there also kind of the the lock-in terror that everyone, you know, don't ever use whatever service the public cloud provider gives me natively. Always build your own so you can move it. In 2012, I used to, ad- I used to advocate for that exact uh, position. And something I noticed over the years, and I look back and I feel a little ashamed for having advocated to some of my clients at the time. (laughs) We're we're all young ones. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, keep it provider agnostic so you can pick it up and move it to another provider. And that is, it came from a good place. But in practice, you spend much more time and effort of maintaining a level of agnosticism and building those primitives on top of existing resources every cloud has in common, more or less the lowest common denominator, that the effort to maintain that far exceeds the effort it would take to actually do a migration, which by and large, not a lot of places are doing. The migration stories in most respects tend to be from on-prem into a cloud provider or backing out again if they're for specific workloads that are not a economic or technical fit for a cloud provider. So my takeaway, Ethan, was I thought it was interesting that the perceived issue is billing and costs. That's why they freak out. Everyone's, ah, the money's too much. While the real issue is about answering the business questions, this sort of makes sense. It's kind of like rubbing the financial modeling crystal ball. And it sounds like approaching the challenge in this manner is the critical success factor for actually lowering costs and empowering engineers and truly beginning to leverage cloud. So I thought that was interesting. What about you, Ethan? Well, as a small business owner, for me, one of the things that I like are very predictable bills. I like to know each month how much I am going to be spending for the various services that I consume. And when it comes to public cloud, any business that would be looking at public cloud would like that predictable nature. But yet your bill is not necessarily predictable, not 100%. Uh, It's going to depend heavily on your application profile and what sort of work is happening. And as we pointed out here, there's all sorts of different metrics and counters and measurements that can be tripped in a given month, meaning your bill is going to fluctuate somewhat, which for people that are close to their accounting systems might drive some folks uh, a little bonkers. But that's why I think in part there's so much interest in AWS billing. Okay, Datanauts listeners, we're going to take a minute and talk about our sponsor today, IT Pro TV. With IT Pro TV, you are getting the most current IT training. They have over 2,000 hours of content in their library, and they are adding over 125 hours each week. 
How do you get at all that content? Really, any way you want. You can stream the courses live, of course, or on demand, and you can do it from anywhere in the world. They are everywhere that you are. So Chromecast, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, PC. They're on iOS and Android with dedicated apps. So what is it that you want to watch? Well, check out the calendar. They've got a bunch of upcoming courses. Some of the new ones include Kali Linux, CCNA CyberOps, CompTIA A+. Some of you are probably managing a team of people that need training well. IT Pro TV has a team solution. That gives you group pricing and then access to the IT Pro TV supervisor portal. With the supervisor portal, you can gain full control over your team's training schedule, create custom groups, give training assignments to individuals, and then see how everyone's doing, the individual and group analytics. And so if you're thinking about this, it's kind of like you don't really have a lot of reason to send staff off-site for training because you can manage all of their training with all of this content using IT Pro TV. Interested? Okay. Go to itpro.tv slash datanauts and use the code datanauts30 to try it free for seven days and receive 30% off your monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. To learn more about IT Pro TV's team solution, sign up for a free demo of their supervisor portal. That's itpro.tv slash datanauts and use code datanauts30. So now that we've dug a little bit deeper into kind of the fallacies and the, the ideas that folks have around AWS billing, let's talk about that in deeper detail around the way it gets bigger than expected. Is it possible to have a stable AWS bill? Because you know, that's the one of the things that you tend to address as a AWS billing consultant, yet it seems like the consumption goes up, it goes down, the, you know, the AWS bill is always going to vary in some way, shape, or form. It absolutely is, but you can usually bound that by a certain point. Once you've identified traffic patterns, that tends to be the sort of thing you can predict, scale up during peaks, scale down during low periods. And you'll generally wind up seeing usage conform to a relatively stable curve. But that assumes the company is holding still. If a company is actively growing, it's less about keeping the bill to a certain fixed amount as it is tying the unit economics of cost per user, whatever metric form that looks like for your company, and making sure that that aligns with infrastructure costs. If, for example, servicing a user today for a month costs 10 bucks, and that's great because they're paying you 100, that's fantastic. But over time, as you continue to look at this, okay, now it's costing us 12 bucks a month to service that user. Now it's 25 bucks a month. Now it's 200 bucks a month. What the heck is going on with our infrastructure bill? And that's the type of early warning sign that companies tend to care about a lot more than, well, last month you spent $20,240 and this month $20,250. That's a $10 difference. Can you explain that to me? And the short answer is no. No, I cannot. In fact, here's a $20 bill. Keep the change. Let's have a conversation about something that matters. That's always going to be the case. It's never going to hit a point for almost any workload where you're going to see consistent numbers month to month. To run my newsletter, I have a pile of Lambda functions, a bunch of S3 buckets, some stuff living in Route 53, an API gateway that I and Amazon should both be rather ashamed about for what it's doing. And all of that tied together winds up being a little over four bucks a month for what I'm doing. How much over? Well, that depends entirely on the month. It still swings by roughly 70 cents which from a percentage-wise basis is huge. But I'm also at very small scale, and small spikes in traffic tend to have an outsized impact as a direct result. 
Now, add three zeros to the end of that, and you'd more or less need to see me doing things like taking out Super Bowl ads to have that level of percentage change over the course of the month. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, from 40 million to 47 million, that would be a non trip. <laughs> that wouldn't be like, here's 20 bucks, go away. And it's also not like you can just limit it to say, well, after 40 million, just turn off. You know, you can't just shut off the spigot when you hit a certain amount. So that, that's an interesting <laughs> challenge. There are ways to do that, but as a general rule, turning the website off is most <laughs> yeah. companies tend to have an issue with. Unless you're the Social Security Administration, which still, I'm not kidding, has hours of service on their website. They have something between four and eight hours every day for a maintenance window, for whatever it is they roll out. I guess the mainframe gets tired and needs to rest. But here in the real world, that isn't usually viable. <laughs> I'm imagining a mainframe running out a treadmill, just like, oh, God, guys, I got to take a break. This is... This is taxing my titanium cores. You know, I got to go. <laughs> Corey, I think the, the there might be some scrutiny on some of these bills because all of a sudden the infrastructure spend is moved from CapEx. We buy a bunch of stuff once a year or once every three years and then just use it to now it's OPEX where you're billed very exactly for what you're using in the course of a month. So people are maybe uh, noticing this and wanting, wishing for that stable bill because every accountant wants that. I want to pay the same thing every month for a given service. But IT doesn't actually work like that. Fair to say? Oh, I'd say it's even worse than you're describing because everything you've just said is true. And then Amazon bolts on their reserved instance model, which tends to make this even more complex and arguably confusing because now you just get billed for what you're using. But with one or three year reservations, you're also being asked often by other business units to predict usage for the next 12 or 36 months. So you're effectively still dealing operationally with the same pain that you were in a CapEx model, but now it hits your balance sheet differently. To that end, you do see a few large companies interested in how to declare some of their cloud spend as CapEx, which you can do, but it requires coordination between your auditor how you wind up doing your accounting, how you wind up reflecting this stuff on your income statement to avoid blowing out your earnings per share. And it does become a massively complex process. But some companies are looking into that specifically to avoid having to take everything as an OPEX hit when they've been using CapEx spend for 50 years. Well, focusing on that OPEX spend for a bit, over-provisioning seems to be one of the things that infrastructure engineers have done historically. How much money can I get in the budget for this spend, and I'm going to build the biggest, baddest, whatever infrastructure component I can, given that money? Now, if you try to take that mindset and move it into AWS and do over-provisioning, you're paying dearly for that. So there was a quote I found as I was researching for the show on HackerNoon.com. The guy was talking about his AWS bill makes the point, quote, AWS is a fantastic platform for hobbyists. It is also a financial behemoth that makes gobs of money by over-provisioning its resources for big companies that forget about how much these little expenses add up. And so if you over-provision, you're screwing yourself when it comes to that OPEX as well. Is that fair to say? To an extent. The other side of it, too, if I can restate that quote, is, well, yes, AWS is great for hobbyists. There are also some of the largest companies in the world running things on top of it. And for that latter category, effectively, the sentiment of that quote is, oh, dear Lord, you mean we actually have to roll out a plan of governance for how we're using cloud resources? 
Yes, you do. If left to its own devices, you can spin up an instance today and you'll retire before that instance does. Staying on top of this in some sense is mandatory at scale in order to catch a lot of that overuse, the waste. And there are different ways to do this, some of which are more culturally palatable to your organization than others may be. But you're still going to wind up in a place of having to institute a control and governance policy. Otherwise, you wind up having conversations, as I've had with some of my clients, of, so you have a petabyte and a half of data sitting in S3. The last access I can see from this was six months ago from someone who doesn't work here anymore. Is anyone still using this, or can we save an enormous pile of money by getting rid of it? Building in controls to capture things like that is important. At small scale, when you're dealing with small teams or hobbyist projects, everything can live in one or two people's heads. But at scale, that falls down massively, and there has to be something that steps up and takes ownership of some of that. And I don't believe that there's a magic tool that's going to solve that for you. And I don't think that blaming people who forget about all of the various things that they've done is the right answer either. There has to be a better story about that. And I think that today is where most of these large enterprises are struggling. But to say that the entire premise of public cloud is now invalidated because some companies don't like doing the housekeeping work, I feel like that's a little bit unfair. (laughs) I mean, Corey, the usual magic tool is turn it off and see if someone complains. In this case, I, I don't know if that really applies for storage. Yes, that's the screen you know? test. <laughs> yeah, it works for servers, not so much for storage, I suppose. I guess delete the whole thing and see if someone complains. And then just say, oh, well, you know, what me worry. To me, that kind of leads into lifecycle management and the fact that it's typically poor. I know in the virtualization world on-prem, there's zombification of virtual workloads that are just kind of sitting there running all day. No one knows what they do. Again, I guess you could turn them off to see who yells, but you may not have visibility into even seeing what's on. And I would imagine there's a lot of workloads that are just sitting there, just literally running up the bill, running an EC2 that don't need to be on. Is that a common concern or something that you target to reduce billing? Or is it just not really impact the bottom line very much? It's something that I tend to expose depending upon what the nature of the engagement is, but usually as a second effect, second order effect, where what I'm doing is going through and analyzing and allocating what's there, applying cost allocation tax, building, in some cases, a chargeback model that makes sense for these companies. And hey, so there's this workload that's costing you X tens of thousands of dollars a month. Who owns this is often the type of annoying question that I like to ask and annoy the heck out of my clients until one day I ask that question. And the answer is like, huh, you know, that's a really good question. Let's find out. And As it goes down the path, it turns out that no one knows what those are, and it's been running on autopilot ever since. There are ways to address that sort of thing programmatically, but it's the sort of thing that requires judgment, and edge cases will potentially cut you to death. If you have an autoscaling group that just does a bunch of worker fleet-style stuff, you may not need to touch that thing for six months if it's a pipeline that's established, working, and not subject to ongoing enhancement. So if, hey, this doesn't look used, I'm going to turn that off suddenly you have a massive problem on your hands. So context becomes extremely important when having these conversations. Let's talk about security for a minute, Corey. So again, digging around the internet, looking for anecdotes for this show. One poor guy had this story of accidentally publishing his AWS access keys. Someone found them and all of a sudden they were using his AWS account to stand up hundreds and I think eventually thousands of servers and he got them all shut down within 24 hours. But it still ran his bill up enormously. That's an extreme example. Somebody really screwed up and let their credentials go. But more broadly speaking, 
are there ways that security or mismanaged security can impact your AWS bill? Generally, yes, with the caveat that in stories like that, I am hard-pressed to find examples of customers who have leaked credentials and wound up with bill shock as a result where Amazon support did not make them whole. They're very human in that context. They generally read them the uh, polite form of the riot act of what are you doing? You effectively just posted your passwords on public GitHub. Maybe don't do that. (laughs) But generally speaking, it, it comes down to good governance. There are a bunch of technological tricks you can do on this. For example, restrict keys that wind up being passed out to developers. Uh, have a 90-minute lifetime that automatically renews the key pairs every time that a user is actively logged in, potentially using two-factor auth, potentially not. I highlighted a tool a few weeks back in my newsletter that you can generate a special key pair and put it with the rest of your credentials because if they're ever used, you can then fire off all kinds of things that shut down access, that fire off alarms, alert your security team. It mostly comes down to negligence, which is why I'm starting up the S3 Bucket Negligence Awards, where people have published or left S3 buckets open to the world. As a result of this, you're seeing people getting access to things at companies they should never have access to. For example, Verizon, Viacom, a company this past week, SV something or other, that has a bunch of access for car tracking for half a million vehicles. Stuff that you really don't want out in the public domain just because people failed to secure these things. So before you start going down the rabbit hole of techno wizardry approaches and far future ways of defeating advanced persistent threats, maybe audit your own permissions and turn off things that the rest of the world doesn't need to see. Amazon themselves have started screaming about this more and more loudly when there are public buckets accessible to the world. And paying attention to some of those alerts is the biggest challenge some companies are having today. What about bad code biting the the user of AWS? And by that, I mean, the inefficiencies that exist in the data center are often hard to uncover. You don't really know if you're firing off a thousand requests over the land because it happens so quickly and no one's really paying attention to it. But bad loops, putting in typos, you know, bad network traffic routing and things like that. It sounds like it can really murder your AWS bill. Is that a concern that comes up? Absolutely. And it's going to be highly contextually dependent. I keep picking on Cassandra because, let's be honest, it deserves it. Uh, (laughs) It tends to be very chatty when you're replicating between availability zones within a region. And given that you are charged per gigabyte of that, a naive Cassandra deployment is going to be horatiously expensive as you go down that path. Sometimes just having visibility shown on that tends to be valuable. But more often than not, no one's minding the store as the environment continues to scale up. And yeah, when we launched that, when we were a team of three to four scrappy developers, we were spending 20 to 40 bucks a month on that. Now it's tens and tens of thousands of dollars, and no one has revisited that. People tend not to keep on top of these things. I see similar types of, uh, I guess, blindness to their own environments when I pay too much attention to the shared narrative. Ooh, We really want to lock down our developer environments because that's really a highly expensive component of our bill. And then you find out it's 2 or 3% because production has scaled, but they're still stuck in a mindset of working in someone's garage where, yes, development expenses were three quarters of your bill because you didn't have any paying customers yet. So keeping up to date with what's there, why it's there, and how it manifests is one of those ongoing challenges as an organization climbs the maturity curve. 
Speaking of the maturity curve, when we opened up the show, Cora, you made the point that, well, migrating to public cloud is really a two-step process. Number one, lift and shift, get things in there. Number two, refactor your application so that you're not getting blown away by just how expensive everything is. Dive into that a little bit more. We're talking about refactoring applications. What does that process look like? And how do organizations need to think about that with an eye to their bill? It's going to depend entirely upon what assumptions are built into your existing application. If you've ever reached out to Amazon and asked them if you can install a NetApp in US East One, the answer was not encouraging. So being able to write an application that can take advantage of cloud storage primitives, for example, instead of having just a locally mounted file system, making calls to an API and receiving an object in return, That's a sort of transition that for some applications is trivial and for others is borderline impossible. So understanding what that refactoring process looks like for a given workload is an essential part of cloud architecture. Unfortunately, we see a number of companies charging into cloud with no real appreciation of that, where it's a cut twice, measure eventually, maybe. And that's where you wind up seeing these workloads getting into trouble, particularly in a costing approach. Rather than refactoring the application to avoid a race condition, for example, sometimes they'll just wildly over-provision throughput on a particular volume. So yeah, you're spending $20,000 a month on a single EBS volume just because that's the easiest way for you to go ahead and get the throughput that you need rather than making a 10-line code fix in your application. Drivers for that are generally complex, and they tend to involve multiple communications paths within your engineering organization. But in the short term, sometimes slapping Band-Aids on that will work, albeit at a much higher cost rate than you'd like So is it reasonable to say that maybe there's some applications you shouldn't lift and shift because as you look ahead to the refactoring process, you might know that, you know what, this one's never going to be right. It's never going to fit into the public cloud paradigm in a way that it's going to make financial sense for us. You know, I keep saying yes, and then people keep surprising me, and not always in the pleasant ways. (laughs) On Monday of this week, there was a borderline press release, which as a rule, I don't link to, but I had to make an exception for this. There is now a way to write and test COBOL mainframe code in AWS based upon a service that someone has launched. Yeah. Until the beginning of this week, I would have told you that there's no way in the world that would be an appropriate workload for the cloud. And today, I will tell you, there is no way in the world that that is an appropriate workload for the cloud, but it's like a car accident. You feel bad, but you can't look away. And increasingly, there, there's, there's a pattern of this where people do things to prove a point or to be funny, and then someone else doesn't realize that they were having a joke and goes ahead and shoves it into production. And that is going to be a cultural and psychological problem that I don't think any tooling technology or company is going to be able to fix. In a more real-world sense, yes, there are workloads that today are not terrific fits for the cloud for a variety of reasons, be they compliance, be they security-driven, maybe they're very strange or very specific throughput or hardware requirements. But generally speaking, none of these large cloud vendors are holding still. And the capability story continues to improve. I think that right now, the list of workloads that is inappropriate for the cloud is small. 
and it's not getting bigger. So I would urge someone who says flat out without much analysis that, oh, our application would never work in a cloud-centric environment, I would encourage them to examine those assumptions and figure out why. If the answer is because they only run on this hardware that we built in-house, okay, yeah, you're right. That's going to take some work to shove into a public service provider. But if it's our developers only know COBOL, well, maybe there's a better story there. Corey, what about selecting, I guess we'll just call it the wrong cloud. So you're looking to put a service or an application into a public cloud provider and you choose Azure or GCP instead of AWS because there's cost-driven reasons to do so. Is that a real thing? Does that exist? Yes and no. But there are scenarios where even when one of those providers on a promotional basis makes their offering completely free to companies, that doesn't generally tend to move the needle on the economic discussion of it. Again, engineering time is far more expensive than the provider itself is going to be. It generally comes down to not just a question of technical capability, which frankly, all three of those providers tend to be very capable within, but also a question of history, a question of customer service, and a question of whether or not you believe in the way that they approach problems. It's easy to pick on Amazon because effectively they've been, they had a five-year head start on this and they do objectively have the most robust offering. But from my perspective, I don't have a particular horse in this race. If GCP suddenly comes from behind and takes over the world, great. I can reposition around that more easily than they can take over the world of public cloud. The challenge, though, is the economic drivers behind this are sometimes subtle and not very well understood. Because in addition to the extreme convoluted aspect AWS bills, Azure bills and GCP bills are themselves extremely convoluted and complex. And as a direct result of this, it becomes extremely difficult to get a genuine apples-to-apples comparison. And while I appreciate the sales teams at all three of these vendors, maybe you don't want to trust the TCO that they've prepared for you on why moving to their provider is going to be far less money than you're spending now. It also is going to take far longer than even uh, the most pessimistic projections can plan for in some cases. So there's a, there's a larger story around this. That said, I don't think that there's a quote-unquote wrong vendor for these types of things. They all offer the same basic primitives. They all tend to be within the uh, same ballpark as far as pricing goes. And not to be rude here, but picking a public cloud vendor based upon a 10% cost savings today, even before you get into um, special pricing agreements with them, seems to be slightly short-sighted. I find that that does not tend to drive a lot of corporate decision-making today. Now, I'm sure there are companies where that is, in fact, true, and they just want the lowest bidder, period. Those are generally not companies that most would consider to be leaders in their industries. The thing that stuck out to me here is that not everything fits in the public cloud, right? There are some things that work well and you just think, oh, it's a VM on my VMware. I'll just spin it up as an EC2 instance and Amazon. Off we go. It's, it's not that simple. You need to look ahead to that refactoring and make a smart decision looking ahead to the future of how that app's going to fit in. You know, That said, Corey brought up the point that there's not as many apps that don't fit. I mean, if, if most apps are going to be able to find a home in the public cloud eventually. You just got to think through it and get it set up properly. Chris, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I thought the, the COBOL in the public cloud, yeah, I guess it's no joke. 
or is it? I, I don't know. <laughs> but it certainly gives me pause and, and you know, the, the wonderment as to what else is in store for potentially solving the edge cases that you're talking about in a loud cloud vendor, because these sharp edges are typically what end up collectively, you know, cutting you death by a thousand cuts in the long run. So again, like you've said, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Although Kobo was one of the first languages I learned. So a little part of me is kind of going, yay. And a lot of me is going, no. Okay, listeners, we're taking a break from our show to discuss today's sponsor, Live Action. Live Action wants you to turn SD-WAN disruption into business transformation with machine learning insights. Lots of marketing buzzwords there, so what are we really getting at? Think of it this way. If you adopt SD-WAN, one of the reasons you do so is probably a cost benefit. You get a return on investment because you can use more than one WAN provider, sometimes internet circuits. Use them all in an agnostic way because you've got an SD-WAN overlay. However, there's some complexity that's abstracted away underneath. So how do you deal with issues that crop up when you've been removed a step from the physical circuits and control plane schemes that you are familiar with? That's the point of the live action webinar on Thursday, October 26th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. I, Ethan Banks, am joining John Smith, live action CTO, to discuss best practices to reduce the complexity of adopting SD-WAN, to govern service assurance using network insights that allow you to be proactive because you got to enforce those SLAs, so it's nice to know when things are going bad before it gets serious, and to make sure that your application is working over the WAN the way you said it would when you recommended this whole SD-WAN install to the company to begin with. John and I are going to go through some SD-WAN market feedback that LiveAction has gathered and then some use cases for their technology. And then finally, we're going to demo the LiveAction platform. And when we do so, we are going to focus on three key features. One, we are going to look at real-time network visualization and topology maps for complete situational awareness. This is the main part of their interface, the one I've seen the most and which I've always liked. Two, we're going to look at continuous machine learning from customer data to provide real-time human-in-the-loop insights for better service management. And I've talked to them about the machine learning claim, and I believe it's legit what they're doing with this data is very interesting. And then three, we're going to look at dashboards, reports, and systems integration for service assurance governance, how you know those SLAs are being enforced. And uh, anyway, hope you're there at the event. It should be a good time. I have admired the live action interface for quite a while now, and I do love nerding out with CTO types who are passionate about their product. If you want to be there, great. you got to register. So register today at www.liveaction.com slash go slash WAN. And while you're there, you can prep for the event by visiting Live Action's Live NX Insight product page. That's where you can find all the information about the product we're going to be demoing. And then you can read their blog, Three Challenges to Consider as You Approach SD-WAN Monitoring. One more time, register using www.liveaction.com slash go slash WAN. And I hope to see you there. We've talked a lot about what can inflate your bill and uh, some ideas around the things you might want to do to control that bill. But how do you catch it when something bad is happening or something maybe not bad, but just unexpected is happening in your AWS domain and the bill is just going to be higher than you expect? Can you catch those costs before they run away? And I researched a bunch of uh, different methods. And, and Corey, I want to ask you first, just manually. This isn't automatic. It's not sexy, but it's uh, manually. You've got this AWS billing console that you can check. And it seems like a pretty straightforward interface. Or is it? I guess that's really the question. Does AWS make it hard to decipher what's going on in there, kind of like a bill from a telecom provider? Or is it a, a useful tool for you to keep control of your costs? 
One of the things that Amazon prides itself on as a company is their devotion to their leadership principles, the things that they look for in every Amazon hire. The one that they hold above all the others is being customer obsessed, being focused on the customer almost to the exclusion of all else. And if you look closely at the period at the end of that sentence, you'll find it's an asterisk. And at the bottom of the page, that asterisk links up to accept the billing console because nobody is happy with how that billing information is presented. It's Byzantine, it's confusing. And for me, where I'm running, again, a $7 to $10 a month bill most months with everything bolted into it, it works well enough. But when you're running seven to 10 million a month in that, it is effectively completely useless. And you have now turned your bill into a big data problem. When you need to bring in a data science team that's attached to your finance group, I can't help but feel that you somehow are not serving your customers with the, I guess, the customer obsession that you talk about that strongly. So you're you're really calling AWS out here on this, that the billing console isn't that useful to me as an end user trying to make sense of my bill or why things were so much higher this month than last month? I mean, is it, can I at least navigate the thing and try to figure out why my bill is twice what it was last month? Or is it really just that awful? You can do that, but it does require some prep work first by enabling cost allocation tags, by turning on the detailed billing report for anything that hints at scale. But it's still a very deep dive experience. And you need to not only have a concept of finance concerns, but also an in-depth understanding of not just what each AWS service that you're using does, but what dimensions it's built upon. With that, you can sort of start to piece together a picture and a narrative, usually in conjunction with other sources as well. Oh, we added 20% more users this month than we normally do. That's a good starting point. But it really is a bit of a murder mystery in some cases, to figure out why. Yes, the bill will show you that this month compute cost more as a percentage of your bill than it did last month. But as far as understanding exactly why, you get to go spelunking. Now, I know AWS offers a billing alert via CloudWatch because I use it. I actually store a lot of stuff in the Glacier, as I think most home users do. And uh, if I exceed $10 in a month period, that's that's a no-no. So I want to know about sort of things like that. So obviously, I'm a bit of a, a home user use case, but for larger companies, enterprise that are such, is this a good tool to be you know, flagging them like, hey, there's a billing threshold, we're exceeding it, or can you add reactions, I don't know, to disable certain services? Maybe not the website per se, but you know, if the bill goes too high, turn off pre-prod, test dev, that kind of jazz? You can, but it does require wiring together a whole bunch of different components to make it go. Uh, that said, I would strongly <laughs> encourage everyone to set up billing alarms until you're at a certain point of scale, at which point it's more or less pointless. For example, when I'm spending $7 a month on average, I have a billing alarm set for $10. And the reason for that is twofold. The first is I kind of want to know if something is going to cost a significant uh, proportion more and see what's going on with that. But additionally, and this is horrifying, or at least should be to most people who give more than a passing thought to security, It is the best early warning indicator that you're going to get in some cases of a key compromise where someone else has gained access to your account. When they start spinning up a whole bunch of spot instances to mine Bitcoin or whatever Dunning-Krugerrand has uh, been the the successful one this week, it winds up in in a place where 
surprise, you've just blown through your billing thresholds. Maybe pay attention to this immediately as a text message is the sort of thing that you want to, that you want to get. And yeah. today, there's no other great global metric for stuff like this. Similar thing. I think we're both at the 10 buck range because it's just it's enough money that I don't think I'm ever going to exceed it. I'm actually typically around four or five dollars a month in glacier charges, and it goes up another four cents a year or something like that. But yeah, it's something where either the software I'm using is potentially exploding because I use Synology to back up to it, or like you say, something malicious is happening. It's just like the dollars is a great thing to track for like bad juju in public cloud because it's not good. I can't monitor all these little services, things like that. I'll just monitor the money and it'll trace back to whatever erroneous thing is going on. Right. But it does break down for large companies. I can't fathom how much Bitcoin mining you would have to do to set off a billing alert on an account going from $60 million a month to $70 million a month. It tends to, at that point, diminish in utility. And yes, $60,000, $70,000, $80,000 charges can disappear in the sea at that scale. Challenge accepted. Let's let's do that when we get done recording the show. Remember, the best AWS accounts are those that belong to someone else. (laughs) <laughs> agree agree is that is that how you're writing your blog you've, you've hacked some poor schmo a couple of years ago and oh absolutely because there's one thing that you want to find in a consultant and that is no sense of ethics it, it's the right answer <laughs> exactly right <laughs> now Corey, we've been talking about those billing alerts via the cloudwatch tool within aws are there third-party services that are any good at uh, keeping up with your aws bill that maybe are, are a better and more capable tool than cloudwatch there are a pile of them. Uh, you've got Cloud Checker, Cloud Health, Cloud Ability, Cloud Dine just got acquired by Azure, Cloud Bandsaw, Cloud various other nouns thrown after the word cloud. And they all fundamentally tend to do the same thing, which is parsing through the detailed billing reports and spitting out a pile of analytics. Usually it's just a nicer dashboard on the same primitives you've got to do regardless within AWS. And There is value for some of these tools, for example, building views or dashboards or perspectives that finance people can look at and get a better sense of how reserved instances are being amortized, whereas engineering can look at it and say, oh, that's my group. Hey, we're seeing a cost spike here. Maybe we should dig deeper. And it's it's somewhat useful, but I'm not convinced in many cases that it's delivering sufficient value for the cost. When you're talking about spending hundreds or millions of dollars a year on these on these offerings, at that point, that starts to be almost enough to staff a team of people who do nothing other than this. And yes, there is the opportunity cost uh, argument to be made there. But past a certain point, it especially at those scales, you wind up with people at Amazon who are willing to go on these deep dives with you. And To be very blunt, I'm somewhat offended that these companies exist, that I have a job at all, (laughs) and that you need to be spending horrifying amounts of money to get Amazonian assistance to really start clarifying some of these things. It just feels like it's a neglected aspect to this. My pet theory is that internally at AWS, you're able to run all kinds of services on your Amazon account and do whatever you want and get the user experience. But to my understanding, based upon little birdies at Amazon, there isn't a, and now take this complex thing you've been running and go ahead and do a cost allocation exercise on it. That's not an aspect of the experience that Amazonians get to or realistically have to deal with. So it's one of those things that isn't as visible to the people building the services as it is to every person who's consuming those services in the real world. 
fair point. We were joking a little bit earlier about the fact that Microsoft needed licensing certified individuals just to figure out, you know, how to apply the right licensing agreements to VDI and other things. So there's there's always these kind of operational or administrative services that I just think at scale are needed, you know, because there's a lot of complexity there. Same reason you need accountants and things like that to go over your taxes every year. It's just too complex. But what about more integrated enterprise services? Uh, we, we've had Turbonomic on the show in the past, and they use cost as a metric when looking at which cloud to stand up a workload in. That's it's kind of their pitch is you have a, you have an application and, and part of the intelligence baked into the system is kind of determining, okay, you should pivot to Azure or this particular region or AZ, et cetera. I think that there is a value to that type of tooling and that type of offer, but the counterpoint to it is I've done these d- quick explorations in the past of arbitraging between different regions, not even different providers, uh, for spot instances, to spin up t- ephemeral nodes quickly and cheaply to chew on a problem. And the challenge that was consistently there was the cost of getting data out of a given availability zone or region into another dwarfed any potential cost savings for that. It's, oh, why not spin up that compute fleet over in GCP, but keep everything else in AWS? That makes a lot of sense if and only if that workload does not have a high degree of data locality. If it's, to give a simplistic example, just calculating out additional uh, primes or looking for more digits of pi, terrific. That is a great use case for something like that. That isn't how most of these workloads that I'm seeing tend to operate. It's, okay, so step one, spin up the slightly cheaper compute instance halfway around the world. Step two, shove half a petabyte of data over to it, at (laughs) which point you're spending tens of thousands of dollars. But hey, the compute node wound up costing $4 less. Good work. There just isn't the, I guess, global applicability of these things. Now, there are workloads for which that makes a tremendous amount of sense. I just don't have the good luck to encounter them that often. Well, I guess the way to close out the show then, Corey, is to remind people that who are looking for AWS billing experts that you are one of those and you, in fact, not only have a newsletter, but can be can be hired to come on in and uh, help them with that. Absolutely. I'm always willing to have conversations with people. And more often than not, there are it's not tend to turn into these grand multi-month projects. It tends to be a relatively short engagement of here's what you're doing, here's where things stand, here's what to keep an eye on. And oh, by the way, here's a list of a bunch of things that no one owns in your environment. Maybe turn those off. It doesn't tend to follow the, oh, and now I'm going to integrate myself into your company for the next 18 months. I hate those engagements. I've worked places where we brought in consultants for that type of engagement. No one won. I like being in and out very quickly. And that is, I guess, how I've built my entire practice. Now, your newsletter is last week in AWS.com where people can go to sign up. And if folks do want to reach out to you to uh, ask you questions, maybe consider bringing you on as a consultant, how would you recommend that they get in touch? Uh, Twitter, email, anything you want to share? Twitter is fantastic. I am Quinny Pig, Q-U-I-N-N-Y, Pig, all one word. Or they can visit my website at quinnadvisory.com. All right, Corey, thank you very much for spending time with us and talking about AWS billing. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach Ethan, that would be me, at EC Banks on Twitter. You can read my articles at packetpushers.net. You can see if Chris left his AWS keys lying around at wallnetwork.com. If you find them, let him know on Twitter at Chris Wall. 
For more of our Data Not shows about infrastructure engineering, do a search in your favorite podcast directory or aim your browser to packetpushers.net. You'll find the Data Knots talking nerdy about all things that make IT go for your organization. And until then, may your server lights blink, your AWS bill be surprise-free, and your cables be cleanly managed. Mic drop at the end of section two. two. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) don't ask if you're not serious. This is the meat, though. This is this is good. Meat. It's a delicious sandwich. Okay, let's get. We'll go to the sourdough after that.